Welcome to That's Illegal, a podcast about international law in the age of nationalism. This podcast is produced by the Global Justice Center, or GJC. The Global Justice Center is a legal human rights nonprofit based in New York City. Our work focuses on moving international humanitarian laws from paper to practice. Our staff consists of lawyers with international law expertise who work regularly with partners at the EU and the UN. Given the recent development of countries turning increasingly nationalistic and the rise in global tensions, we thought it would be a good idea to sit down and talk about the importance of international law, why we have it, and why we should implement it. So every week we're going to take a look at the latest news and break down the legality of what happened using the framework of international law. This week, we'll be discussing how the new political landscape ushered in by the 2016 presidential election presents an opportunity to reconsider the status of women's rights in the United States. In particular, we'll be discussing how international law can be a useful tool to ensure greater protections for women against gender discrimination. So let's start with the basics. What is CEDAW? CEDAW is an international human rights treaty, uh, and CEDAW is an acronym standing for the Convention for the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. There are 197 countries in the world, 189 of those are states parties to CEDAW, so it's one of the broadest enforceable human rights treaties. The countries that haven't signed on to it are the U.S., Iran, Somalia, Sudan, Tonga, Nui, and the Holy See, which is the Vatican. Next question. Does that mean that North Korea signed it? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Saudi Arabia has signed it. Yemen. Yeah, a lot of countries that you think as having really horrible human rights records mm-hmm. are states parties to CETA. And you obviously U.S. is not one of them. And on that, I would add, we can talk a little bit more about this concept later, but oftentimes when countries sign treaties, they put in these things called RUDs. They stand for Reservations, Understanding, and Declarations, which are ways for countries to, even at the outset, say, limit the application of the treaty. There is no human rights treaty with as many reservations as CEDAW. And a lot of those reservations are because CEDAW has very broad and progressive mandates around religion and the fact that religion can't impede access to gender equality. It also has really progressive provisions around reproductive rights. It has progressive provisions around equality in family life. And so a lot of the countries where we may be suspicious of them having ratified CEDAW have also put in some pretty serious reservations to the treaty. So can you tell me a little bit about the origin of CEDAW? When was it signed? Why was it drafted? Its backstory? Sure. So CEDAW came into force in 1979. And typically for a treaty to be enforced, it takes 30 signatures. So then 30 countries will sign and ratify the treaty and then it becomes enforceable. And until that threshold is met, it's not enforceable. But for CEDAW, that's long, long in the past. The genesis of it was there's something called the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was actually championed by Eleanor Roosevelt. And it's the very first kind of human rights treaty. What it does is much like CEDAW, guaranteed some basic rights to everybody. Picking up on the Universal Declaration, two human rights treaties that look more like CEDAW and how they operate and impose specific obligations were actually created, which were the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. And those three things together, the Universal Declaration as well as the two international covenants, form what's known as the International Bill of Rights. After those were put into place, what's happened is they discovered that it's necessary to also maybe specify the rights of certain types of minority groups or groups that deserve special attention. So CEDAW is the treaty for women. And at the time that it was signed and ratified or created in 1979, CEDAW was referred to as the Women's Bill of Rights. 
Okay, so then tell me more about CEDAW specifically. Like, what are its articles? What are its tenants? So CEDAW has 30 articles, 16 of which are what we call substantive, that actually talk about the substantive areas where countries are supposed to end discrimination against women. And it's very intentionally designed to be as broad as possible and touch on every aspect of a woman's life. So these substantive articles cover things such as employment and education and health, political participation, and the way that that goes about being enforced. So human rights treaties, the ones that Akila was talking about earlier, the ICCPR, the ICESCR, the Convention for the Rights of the Child, CEDAW, they have what's called committees, a treaty body committee. And so every year the treaty body gets together, the CEDAW committee gets together and looks at how states' parties have been enacting or putting into effect these substantive articles. So this summer, the CEDAW committee will get together and it will look like a country like Mexico and say, okay, Mexico, you've done very well on enacting CEDAW provisions on health, but you're still lacking a little bit on political participation. And that's obviously very a truncated version of what goes on. And the committee is designed to hold countries to account in making sure that CEDAW is fully realized. The articles themselves are somewhat general, much like many constitutions. So they say you have a right to health and the right to health looks a little bit like this. Then this committee that Grant is talking about that examines the individual countries, they also issue detailed guidance around what does this mean. Then they also issue some of these thematic general recommendations. So there's one on violence against women, which cuts across many of CEDAW's categories. Or there's one on women in conflict and post-conflict situations. A very important one is actually one on an issue called temporary special measures. CEDAW provides not only that the government needs to take active steps in order to eliminate discrimination and achieve equality, but it actually provides this whole idea that, in fact, there are temporary measures that sometimes you should put in place in order to speed up the achievement of equality, recognizing that women's equality is something that's been hampered by years and years of discrimination and inequality. So for example, one thing CEDAW says is recognizing that around the world, women's political participation is very low. The international average of women in national legislatures is around 21%. So what CEDAW says is you can use things like, say, put in a gender quota until you achieve somewhat of parity, at least get up to 30% or 40%, at which point you can then take some of these special measures away, but you can accelerate equality. And an example of that is in Rwanda, that they set a quota after the conflict for X percent of women to be on their Supreme Court and represented in their parliament and has have since reached that threshold, taken the quota away, but people just continue to elect women because they're doing their job as well as anyone would be able to do their job. But it took away some of the stigma of having that historical patriarchal attitude. Can you give us more examples of how CEDAW is used to advance women's rights? Sure. So in Botswana and Japan, for instance, they use CEDAW in order to create broader citizenship rights for women. In Tanzania, CEDAW was used to improve inheritance rights. In Costa Rica, access to political participation and property rights were pushed forward by deferring to CEDAW. And this is all done, again, through that review process. So these issues come up in these particular countries during their review. Countries take that input from the CEDAW committee and then in the time that they're not being reviewed, try to make changes in order to affect CEDAW. And for example, in Colombia in 1999, the country was being reviewed by the CEDAW committee. Women's rights groups submitted information about Colombia's blanket abortion ban. 
So they had a law that prohibited abortion in all circumstances, which CEDAW, through some of its general recommendations and other ways, has said, actually is not in compliance with the treaty. So CEDAW issued a specific recommendation to the country of Colombia that said, you need to change your abortion law and at least allow these exceptions. Then the women's rights activists used that as one of their handles and challenged the abortion law through the court system. It went up to the Colombian Constitutional Court. The Constitutional Court, because of Colombia's constitution, incorporates international law into their constitution, into their legal system. So they looked at it and said, oh, we have these obligations under CEDAW. The committee has said that our blanket ban is actually incompatible with our obligations under the treaty and actually changed Colombia's abortion law to ensure these exceptions. And so there are these very specific and concrete examples as to how these generalized provisions or these aspirational provisions can actually be used to change women's lives. And can I ask just because I'm curious, the rural women, what does that mean? CEDAW recognizes that the situation of rural women is different than that of urban women. So rural women have different relationships to society than urban women do. So, for instance, if domestic work is not taken into consideration in a country's GDP, for instance, that's going to misrepresent a lot of work that is being done. Not to say that urban women aren't performing domestic work, but it is the case that worldwide, the lion's share of that falls on rural women. Or in terms of things like access to healthcare. So if you have a right to healthcare, the right to healthcare also involves being able to get it. And if you live in a rural area, it may be much harder for you to get to a hospital. There may be less hospitals. There may be less clinics. Let's talk about an example that we would have in the United States. You've got a state that only has one clinic that can provide abortion services. So for women who are coming from rural areas who are maybe not near that city, it would take them two days to travel. That's something that CEDAW says needs to be taken into consideration in understanding how rural women have access to those same rights. And this is all part and parcel of a very interesting concept that I think exists within CEDAW, which is the idea that there's intersecting forms of discrimination. This is the core of intersectionality within conversations around feminism, but the idea that if you are a woman, you face discrimination. But then if you belong to a particular race or a particular minority population, that may layer on top of it. If you're part of an LGBTI population, it layers on the types of discrimination. It's not just that your discrimination as a woman sits out here, your discrimination as a member of a minority population sits out here. And CEDAW has been quite progressive in trying to figure out how you're supposed to address these intersecting forms of discrimination as well. And so just to pick up on something Akila just said there, when she says CEDAW has been quite progressive, She means both the treaty because it's worded broadly, but I think primarily, if I can put words in your mouth, she means the committee. And so the committee is issuing these general recommendations. They're evaluating these countries and they are taking a 2017 view of what this intersectionality looks like. So if you hear an international lawyer say CEDAW has been very proactive in this, we're going to be talking about the committee. Okay, so let's talk about the U.S. What is the U.S.'s history with this treaty and why have we not signed it? The U.S. signed the treaty in 1979 when it was first opened for ratification. That was done by Jimmy Carter. In order for a treaty to become enforceable in the United States, it takes two-thirds of senators to vote for it. And what it is, is in the U.S., the president can unilaterally sign any treaty. Constitutionally, the president has the power to sign, which is what Jimmy Carter did. And then it has to go to the Senate for this advice and consent process. Only if it goes through that process and gets the two-third majority does the U.S. get to then ratify the treaty. 
So it was just signed by the U.S. for a long time. And then Clinton tried. Clinton took the convention to the Foreign Relations Committee in the Senate, had them discuss it, had them vote it. They voted to put it to a floor vote and Jesse Helms crushed it. W. Bush actually was for it originally as well. And he put it to committee and that committee voted to put it to the floor. But he since changed his mind and they didn't. Right. So I think the last time it was up for anything in the Senate was 2002. Under under George W. Bush, the Obama administration had multiple times expressed their desire to have the treaty ratified and their support for the treaty. However, it never made it anywhere through the Senate, including through the Judiciary Committee. One thing that has been a really important part of this ratification debate in the United States has been the idea that the reason that the U.S. should ratify CEDAW, now this rationale has been used by the people trying to get CEDAW ratified, so it's not a conservative thing, but in order to kind of get through conservative opposition, they've really framed CEDAW as something not for American women, but for the U.S. showing leadership by signing on to women's equality because it would be important for women around the world. It's a little arrogant to be like, we're going to show them how to do it, even though we've already yes. done it. Yeah. And it's also arrogant considering that we have terrible protections yeah. in the United States for gender. We actually need CEDAW. So that's the rhetoric that was employed. And then on top of it, what the U.S. tried to do, and really Clinton was guilty of this, they decided that it was more important to get CEDAW passed, even over conservative opposition, even if it limited what CEDAW could do. And so what happened was when the Clinton administration submitted it to the Senate Judiciary Committee in the 90s, they had a series of nine reservations, understandings, and declarations on it, which is what we talked about earlier about CEDAW being the treaty with the most of those in the first place. And so some of the major ones that the U.S., the Clinton administration and the Senate was agreeing to was one that limited CEDAW to only regulate the state conduct. And so CEDAW has provisions that actually ask you to regulate the conduct of private actors, which is really important in the context of, say, sexual harassment laws. Or the Walmart case that got thrown out from being class certified on equal pay and promotions within the workplace because CEDAW has a right to employment and robust protections on that. So the U.S. wanted to limit CEDAW to be understood to not regulate private conduct, except as far as the U.S. Constitution or U.S. federal law regulates private conduct. Another one was to say that CEDAW has nothing to do with telling the U.S. whether they had to put women in combat positions in the military. They also rejected the notion that's in CEDAW of comparable worth, which we call equal pay here. But CEDAW has a pretty expansive definition of what women should be paid for equal work, and we explicitly rejected that definition in a reservation. They also rejected CEDAW's provisions on paid maternity leave. And then the two really, I think, special ones, there was a understanding that they wanted to put in that CEDAW was abortion neutral. And what that means is they said, well, CEDAW doesn't say anything about abortion. And the United States can decide when it comes to women's health care, what is necessary and appropriate care that needs to be provided. CEDAW has been very good in actually ensuring women's access to reproductive care. And so this would not only be problematic in terms of its implementation in the United States, but an understanding that CEDAW is abortion neutral could actually really hamper the understanding of CEDAW around the world as well and other places where it's been used. The other one that is a real central tenet of how the U.S. signs human rights treaties and then has them mean nothing within the United States is they put in an understanding that CEDAW is non-self-executing. This is a constitutional issue within the United States. So the Constitution actually, the Supremacy Clause of the Constitution, 
recognizes international law as a part of the law of the United States, but there's this doctrine of self-execution that has developed around it. What that means is unless a treaty or its particular provisions are deemed to be self-executing, you do not actually as an individual have rights under that treaty in the U.S. unless Congress takes that provision and specifically incorporates it into U.S. law. So in other countries, when you ratify CEDAW, you can actually assert rights and say, I have a right to health under CEDAW. It has been ratified in this country that is being violated as a part of, say, a legal challenge. In the United States, unless a particular treaty provision is self-executing or if it's non-self-executing, has been specifically incorporated into U.S. law, you can't do that. Are there so, any treaties we've ratified that are self-executing? Like, it be an example. Do we not Not do in it? human rights. Not in human not rights? Not in human okay. rights. And even in other treaties. So there's a very large area of law around a treaty that the U.S. signed on consular relations. And you can see the absurdity of this doctrine when we talk about this issue. So in the Vienna Convention on Consular Relations, there's one provision that basically says, say you're visiting somewhere and you travel and you commit a crime or you're arrested for whatever reason, you as a national have a right for your consulate to be notified and for you to have contact with them. Now, when you sign a treaty like that, it seems pretty evident that that would be an individual right that's conferred. However, this case went up through the U.S. Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court found that that was a non-self-executing provision and therefore anyone who's arrested in the United States doesn't actually have a right under this treaty. And this is actually a huge issue in international law because the International Court of Justice said exactly the opposite and found the U.S. in violation of this provision twice with respect to both nationals from Germany and then with nationals from Mexico. And even George W. Bush actually said, hey, give people their consular relations and the state of Texas refused to do so and that's why it went up to the U.S. Supreme Court. A lot of the pushback against CEDAW in the United States has been the idea that it's going to undermine family values. It's going to, it's against free market capitalism. It takes away U.S. sovereignty. Those are all wrong. It's not the case that CEDAW just comes in and wipes clean the U.S. Constitution or starts giving orders to the president or Congress or state senators to do anything. That's not how the inaction of human rights treaties work. Human rights treaties put obligations on the government to do stuff, but that is exactly it. The government then gets to and and is held accountable to do those things, but it can do them in the style that that government wants to and has. And this transcends CEDAW. It's a human rights treaty in the United States theme anyway, but it's not... We shouldn't be as scared of these international mechanisms to make our lives better as we are. And it's because this false idea that they are strange international overlords has somehow taken root, which is totally not how human rights treaties work. But also, to pick up on that, the U.S. is oftentimes the strange international overlord. The U.S. has been active in writing these treaties and negotiating these treaties, even in promoting these treaties. So USAID spends millions of dollars encouraging other countries to implement CEDAW in their own country. We have bought into the system because we have created the system. We just don't think we need it. And I would say we absolutely need it. The United States has been at the forefront of, say, pushing for a lot of these system, these mechanisms to be created, but we've cut our own citizens off from these protections by pretending like everything that we already have is better than what's in those treaties. That is unfortunately just not true. 
you know, these treaties have come into place. They're progressive starting in the 60s and have built out this jurisprudence now. It's not the same as our constitution that was written in the 1700s. They do, in fact, offer more protections. And people within the United States deserve those protections because that's the fundamental tenet of the idea behind human rights. And what the U.S. is actively doing is cutting us off. Even if we were to have ratification, oftentimes ratification has been premised on a significantly weakened version of CEDAW, one that's much less robust than we would want to actually ensure gender equality in the United States. Is the thought if this came to the Senate today, the RUDs would still be in effect? I think part of the reason that the RUDs were in there so prominently for Clinton was that there was a plausible opportunity for it to pass advice and consent of the Senate, which just doesn't exist now. So it was, let's water this down to make it more palatable to what are considered moderates in American politics in order to get to that two-thirds number. That's just not our current political reality. So Mm -hmm. It wouldn't ever get onto the Senate floor, let alone no version of it would. So there's no reason to put the RUDs in. And it's important to keep in mind that through our court system, when you look at the interpretation of a treaty and the enforcement of a treaty, they actually look at the legislative history of its ratification within the Senate. So if the Senate had put these reservations and understandings around them, unless the Senate explicitly takes those away we're stuck with them. That is the legislative history that we're stuck with. You know, much like sometimes we go back and look at the thoughts of some old men in the 1700s when it comes to certain constitutional provisions and what the intention was behind them. That's the same idea that would go into looking at legislative intent in this context. So speaking about our constitution, you mentioned this a little bit. So what rights would women in America have under CETA that they don't currently have under our constitution? So the U.S. Constitution does not explicitly prohibit discrimination against women as such. The only specific prohibition of discrimination against women is in the 19th Amendment when it comes to the right to vote. Otherwise, in the U.S., there's been a movement to pass an Equal Rights Amendment, but it has never passed. It has never made it. And so all we have within the United States for women's protections is an implied understanding that the 14th Amendment's equal protection includes sex. And you can see through various jurisprudence that it's actually insufficient. The U.S. doesn't consider a lot of things, especially related to pregnancy and biological differences between men and women, to raise up to that level. And so they don't have the strict scrutiny or the strongest protections of the Constitution behind them. And if I could just jump Mm -hmm. in, when she says strict scrutiny, what she means is so if a law is passed in the U.S. and someone wants to challenge it and say this law is unconstitutional, that you know, judges are people and judges can either look at something easily or they can look at something very, very rigorously. And depending on what it is the law addresses is going to then tell the judges what to do. And that is a fundamental feature of American jur- jurisprudence that exists for all laws. All laws discriminate against people. If you have a law that says you can't drive 30 miles an hour, you're discriminating against people who want to drive more than 30 miles an hour. But we just don't. That's okay with us. People that drive over 30 miles an hour are not a protected class. They're going to get the easiest passage for judges are going to look at that and say people that drive over 30 aren't special. This law is valid. Now, laws based on racial differences are theoretically permitted under American law, but they get what's called strict scrutiny. And a judge is going to go through that law 
in minute detail and make sure that that law is as narrow as it possibly can be to affect a very, very important government interest. So it's a very, very rigorous legal evaluation that rarely ever passes. If you ever write a law that discriminates against any of these protected classes, things like race, mm -hmm. it is not easy to pass. It happens sometimes. In a famous case is the U.S. versus Korematsu in World War II when we had the Japanese internment camps. Mm -hmm. That passed strict scrutiny. It was a discrimination, you know, it discriminated on the basis of race. The Supreme Court looked at it and said, we're doing our best considering the nature of the threat this passes. That's a very controversial case in We're all America. scared of Japanese people right now, so. That's, but that's that was what, what the decision but was. But that's that's, we don't have unequivocal protection. They said the government has a compelling interest in doing something about this issue and the government has a compelling interest in regulating the conduct or regulating the presence of Japanese people within the United States as a matter of security in this context. And that internment camps were narrowly tailored and necessary in order to achieve that governmental interest. When it comes to women, it's even lower. So gender gets a middle level of scrutiny. This, the lowest level one is called rational basis, and it has to be plausibly connected to a legitimate government interest. The highest level of scrutiny, strict scrutiny, is it has to be narrowly tailored to achieve a compelling government interest. Intermediate scrutiny has been said a variety of different ways, but it's it can't be any broader than necessary to achieve a, an important government interest. And now courts will parse through these words and try to figure out what they mean, but obviously it's quite subjective. And what that ends up meaning is that gender protections are quite easily watered down because you're just depending on who traditionally are white male judges sitting on the bench looking at whether or not XYZ is an important government interest. So one thing I would add is in terms of gender protections under the Constitution, when women are trying to do things like men, that generally gets strict scrutiny. It usually comes in under the 14th Amendment equal protection. So in, in Virginia, there was a famous case of a woman wanted to go to the Virginia Military Institute, and it was only for men. And in that context, the court used strict scrutiny to find that the Military Institute actually did have to admit women. You can articulate the rationale behind it based on biological differences between men and women, it gets intermediate scrutiny because you have to imply the rights that are being used from other areas of the Constitution. In an early case that was actually lost by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, it was a case of discrimination based on pregnancy. And what the court said was, it's not discrimination between men and women, which is why it's not equality. It's discrimination between pregnant women and not pregnant persons which could include men, but it also includes women. Therefore, it's not gender-based discrimination. That is an example of how we understand gender when it comes to our constitutional protections. And it is the full antithesis of how CEDAW looks at the issue of gender equality. I think within the United States, reproductive rights is probably a very important area where CEDAW would be very, very useful in redefining the ideas and the laws within the United States. Um, and this is why an understanding that CEDAW is abortion neutral is very dangerous for the U.S. So what CEDAW has said is that under a right to health, under a right to be free from gender-based discrimination, a state can't place barriers to health for services only needed by women. And so 
the clearest example, abortion. In the United States, abortion jurisprudence has come out of our jurisprudence on contraception, which comes out of an implied right to privacy. So the idea that you have the right in your private life to make choices related to marriage, to your sex life. And because we had some of these bad cases before Roe was argued, including the 1971 Gadaldi case, which is the one that I was talking about with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the abortion cases were brought up under this implied right to privacy, which is a due process right and not a right of equal protection. And so at that time, though, privacy was actually considered strict scrutiny, but it's been whittled down ever since Roe v. Wade was decided. So under Roe, what was decided was that women had a right to make choices about what happened to their body within this this framework of fetal viability. So until the second trimester, the state had no interest in regulating a woman's choices when it came to abortion. That has slowly been whittled down since the 70s. During the Reagan era, there was widespread anti-choice movement that popped up that really started attacking women's access to abortion and rights to abortion. And by the time we got to 1972, when the Casey case was decided, we had gotten to a place where abortion basically gets dropped down to some form of this intermediate scrutiny. And in Casey, what was decided was that a state, in fact, does have an important interest in fetal life, and that as long as it did not place an undue burden on a woman's right to access abortion before fetal viability. Under Roe, it was a trimester framework. Under Casey, it became fetal viability, which is particularly interesting now in the context in which babies that are born at 20, 24 weeks with the technology that we have now are considered viable, which was obviously not the case in 1992 even. But what they said was you can't place an undue burden. So the Casey case allowed Pennsylvania's 24-hour waiting period because they said it was the state had a good interest in ensuring careful deliberation of important choices like abortion, um, you know, infantilizing women to not have really thought through their decisions before they show up in a certain place. And they said that that's okay. And that doesn't meet CDOS standards. You say, and that's the kind of just the fundamental difference, or that's why we're taking all this time to describe what the U.S. courts would do with it, because there's the way that gender has been protected under the U.S. Constitution, which is through this right to privacy that Akela has been articulating, versus CEDAW just saying women get equal health. And CEDAW, in addition to saying that women get equal health, has a very specific provision. And what CEDAW requires is that the, the right to equality needs to be both de jure, which is in law, and de facto, which is in fact. What that means is it's not just that you read a law and says, you know, I'm going to use an example. In Burma, the Constitution has a law that says that there are certain types of jobs that only men are suited for. You read that law, you look at it, and you go, that is discriminatory against women. That's de jure discrimination. We don't really have a lot of laws that look like that that are currently being passed these days. Then you have de facto or in effect. In that context, CEDAW requires you to look at the impact of the law and say, does it have a discriminatory impact? And when it comes to issues such as abortion, absolutely, right? A lot of these laws do in fact discriminate deeply against women. You could probably argue, maybe not in the United States, but elsewhere, that abortion laws in general on their face are discriminatory as well. But 
That is the very important difference. So since we are not going to get this passed through the Senate anytime soon, is there anything that people can do in America to get those protections? Recognizing that ratification of the Senate hasn't been possible, starting with, unsurprisingly, San Francisco in the 80s, certain cities have actually ratified CEDAW and tried to put CEDAW into place as a way of saying, if our federal government isn't doing it, we still believe that gender equality is important and we will use CEDAW's general tenets to put it into place within our cities and within our states. This is a great first step. It's a great way to model what gender protections could look like It's a great way to start saying how seriously we take gender, start putting some of CEDAW's provisions into place. Unfortunately, those cities, they can't actually sign an international treaty. And so a lot of the enforcement mechanisms that exist, the recourse mechanisms that exist, can't be applied. And so it can be a really important stepping stone to, I think, getting people to recognize how important CEDAW can be, how CEDAW can actually be used to change the situation of women's rights by showing what it can do in particular localities or particular states to build up towards the idea that, in fact, we do need it at the federal level as well. I mean, the opportunity to ratify CEDAW is always possible. Any legislative achievement that any of us want is a technical possibility. But in order for it to be done in the United States, you need 66 senators and you need those senators to know that CEDAW is something that you care about. So the way it gets done is not any different than what any other law you want is you call your senator, you let them know it's important to you. It happens on a, across the country and it's that easy and that difficult. And we have elections coming up for the Senate in next year. And so there is a ripe opportunity to bring these issues back. We have a resurgence of the understanding that perhaps women's rights in America weren't as well protected as we thought they were. And we have, right, so Hellerstadt, that last case that was decided by the Supreme Court on abortion, was these types of cases are now being decided on the width of a hallway. That's how pedantic we've gotten when it comes to regulating abortion because these anti-choice forces know that if you cut off access, you shut down the clinics, you cut off the right. So by regulating, say, how wide a hallway in an abortion clinic has to be, how deep a sink has to be, that's what we're fighting on. And so I think that it's important to use this moment of realizing that we don't just want to be on the defensive and make demands on the people that we're electing starting with the next set of elections and say, hey, you're running for my Senate seat. Where do you stand on CEDAW? Will you commit to ratifying CEDAW? Thank you so much for joining us. Tune in next week for more discussions on international law.